Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's summertime, you know, when we always talk about blockbusters, whether or not they open in the summertime, as is the case with today's episode. Did it? It did not. Oh. <laughs> well, it's kind of a blockbuster as horror goes. Certainly a blockbuster. It made a shit ton of money. Certainly in the mind's eye of pop culture fanaticism yes. from the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about The Ring. The Ring is a 2002 American psychological supernatural horror film directed by Gore Verbinski from a screenplay by Aaron Kruger and starring Naomi Watts, Martin Henderson, and Brian Cox. It's a remake of Hideo Nakata's 1998 film Ring, based on Koji Suzuki's 1991 novel of the same name. The plot centers on Rachel Keller, a journalist who must figure out a way to escape death after watching a cursed videotape that seemingly kills the viewer seven days after viewing it. Dum dum. The film is the first installment of the American Ring series and is followed by The Ring 2 from 2005 and Rings from 2017. That piece of shit. The success of The Ring paved the way for American remakes of several other Asian and Japanese horror films, including The Grudge and Dark Water. The hauntingly beautiful film score was composed by the one and only Hans Zimmer and remains to this day his only major foray into horror. He didn't do Ring 2? Nope. Oh, okay. Okay, listeners. Seven days. This is the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. And why she looks so sad in photographs. Absolutely love her when she kills me. <laughs> the ring. On a rainy Seattle night, teen girls Katie and Becca are home alone having a sleepover. Since streaming hasn't been invented yet, they become bored with the TV and stream on each other. <laughs> Becca tells Katie about an urban legend she heard about involving a cursed videotape which causes whoever watches it to die in seven days. The tape shows a fever dream of images, and the phone rings after it's finished with your death declaration. Katie tells Becca that she'd watched it the previous weekend with her boyfriend, but plays it off as a joke. 
Things aren't as funny as she makes them seem, however, as she dies that night with a look of horror on her face. Katie's aunt, Rachel, played by Naomi Watts, is an investigative journalist at the Seattle newspaper because print has yet to get its death declaration. Rachel's young son, Aiden, played by David Dorfman, is a weird little crotch fruit who has seemed troubled since the death of his cousin, Katie. His teacher explains to Rachel that he'd made drawings that seemed to predict Katie's death. At Katie's funeral, Rachel is asked by her sister to investigate Katie's death and is reluctant to do so until she learns about the mysterious tape and that Katie's friends also died mysteriously at the same time and day that she did. Rachel heads to Shelter Mountain Inn where Katie and co. watch the tape. There she finds the tape because video has yet to get its death declaration and watches it in horror. A woman is prominently featured throughout the disturbing video. When the showing ends, the landline rings because landlines have yet to get their death declaration and a voice whispers, seven days, thus beginning her week-long march towards death. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, Rachel's ex-boyfriend Noah, played by Martin Henderson, is a video analyst. She shows him the tape and he gets a phone call, thus beginning his week-long march towards death. She makes a copy for a further study, but the copy doesn't display the normal qualities of a video. Rachel can't be bothered by her impending demise, and she puts on her journalist hat and gets to work. She identifies the woman on the tape as Anna Morgan, a horse breeder who committed suicide after some of her horses drowned themselves at her home on Moesco Island. Rachel awakes the next morning to the now very familiar sound of the evil tape. Her crotch fruit has watched the tape. She screams at her crotch fruit like it will change anything, and then screams mysterious caller like it will change anything at all either. Thus, Aiden begins his week-long march towards death. She calls Noah to tell him that their son, plot twist, has watched the accursed film. With the entire family's life on the line, Rachel jumps into high journalism gear. Rachel heads to Mosco Island to speak with Anna's widower, Richard, played by Brian Cox, but takes a little time to spook a horse to death in the ferry. On the island, things get curiouser and curiouser when Rachel talks to the local doctor. The doctor explains that Anna and Richard have a child that they claimed was adopted. This little girl, Samara, played by Davy Chase, seemingly had the psychic ability to etch images onto objects and into people's minds, very similarly to what Rachel had been experiencing since watching the tape. Samara had been tormenting her parents and the horses with her talent. Meanwhile, Noah heads to the psychiatric hospital to find Anna's medical files. Instead, he finds a file on Samara with a recorded session that had disappeared after being checked out by her father, Richard. Back at the Morgan home, Rachel finds a document proving that Samara was their adopted child. She also finds the missing tape on which Samara explains her power and how she can't stop hurting people. Can't stop, won't stop. (laughs) Rachel gets a bump on the noggin from Richard, who tells her that Samara was as evil as the devil's crotch fruit. Then he takes a bath with every electrical appliance in the house. So begins his seven-second journey to death. (laughs) Thus beginning his seven-second march toward death. (laughs) I like how he had a fucking, like, power surge. He's like, clips. Yep. Noah joins Rachel at the Morgan house, where they find a little room in the barn where Samara was stashed away. Behind the wallpaper, they find the image of a tree etched into the wall. Rachel recognizes it as the tree near the Shelter Mountain Inn. They race to the inn and find a well underneath the floor of the cabin. Rachel is knocked into the well, and Samara's body emerges, and Rachel has a vision of how the events unfolded. 
Anna, tormented by Samara's ability, attempts to smother her with a plastic bag and pushes her body into the well, but Samara is still alive and watches as her mother closes the well, thus beginning Samara's week-long march towards death. Rachel and Noah arrange a proper burial. Phew, everything's fine now. After all, Rachel has survived her seven-day waiting period. Proper burials always end the horror, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. Rachel's own creepy crotch fruit knows what's up. He tells his mom, You shouldn't have helped Samara, you dumb cunt. Now her spirit has been released into the wild or something. (laughs) What are you having me read? Rachel realizes that Noah's seven-day waiting period is coming to a close at just that very moment. She frantically calls him and races across town to save the day. At his apartment, Noah's doing some video analysis or some such, and the TV in the background turns on to static. He turns it off, but the TV is having none of that. It again starts, and the image of the well from the video is on the screen. Samara begins to climb out of the well and walk towards the TV screen, and then completely out of it! Samara stares directly at him, causing his death in the most horrific orgasm face ever. Rachel discovers his body and shrieks in terror. At home, Rachel hysterically destroys the tape, unable to understand why she was spared, but not Noah. Then she sees the copy she made. Aha, she says. She helps Aiden make a copy of the tape for someone else to watch, saving him. She tells him that everything's going to be alright now. But her crotch fruit is too smart for that placation. What's going to happen to the person who watches the copy? He wonders. Cue the inevitable sequel. The... And I love how the crotch fruit voice you made is a combination of that little boy and Tangina. <laughs> this well is clean. <laughs> Could y'all back up? You're jamming Samara's frequency. <laughs> this plot recontextualization is giving me whiplash. <laughs> The Ring was released in the U.S. on October 18, 2002, on almost 2,000 screens. The film grossed a little more than 15 million opening weekends, securing the number one spot at the box office. The film will become a sleeper hit, leading DreamWorks to expand its release to 700 more screens. Other movies in the top 10 that weekend included My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Red Dragon, and Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. The Ring would remain in the top 10 for eight weeks, and worldwide would gross $249 million against a budget of $48 million. That is what you call a blockbuster. That's a horror blockbuster. Holy shit. Yeah. $200 million above the budget. For real. The Ring holds a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score at 48%. The site's consensus reads, With little gore and a lot of creepy visuals, The Ring gets under your skin, thanks to Gore Verbinski's haunting sense of atmosphere and an impassioned performance by Naomi Watts. Audiences pulled by CinemaScore gave The Ring an average grade of B-. But only a 48% audience score. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. On Ebert and Roper, Richard Roper gave the film a thumbs up and said it was very gripping and scary despite some minor unanswered questions. Roger Ebert gave the film a thumbs down and felt it was boring and borderline ridiculous. He also disliked the extended, detailed ending. Jeremy Conrad from IGN praised The Ring for its atmospheric setup and cinematography and said that, quote, there are disturbing images, 
but the film doesn't really rely on gore to deliver the scares. Very true. Film threats Jim Agnew. <laughs> Agnew. <laughs> Jim Agnew called it dark, disturbing, and original. <clears throat> even though it's a remake. That's right. <laughs> Not that original. And the remake is a remake. Damn it, Jim. And the original is actually a remake. <laughs> That's right. But we're going to get to that. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that movie, too. Uh, despite the praise given to the direction, some criticized the lack of character development. Jonathan Rosenham from the Chicago Reader said that the film was an utter waste of Watts, perhaps because the script didn't bother to give her a character. She had a fucking character. Mm-hmm. Whereas, no. <laughs> whereas William Arnold from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, which uh, I guess that's where she worked, maybe? Disagreed, claiming that she projects intelligence, determination, and resourcefulness in the film. Several critics, like the Miami Herald's Renee Rodriguez and the USA Today's Claudia Pugue, found themselves confused and thought for all the time the film spends explaining, it still doesn't make much sense. I think her newspaper in the film was called The Inquirer. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's... uh, you know, we're going to talk about the story's economy, but I think it really, really establishes a very specific personality mm-hmm. and dynamic with her and the relationship between her ex-boyfriend and her son. That's right. And I think it does that very, very quickly and does it very well and it's consistent. I would agree. And so whoever this is, is just flat out wrong objectively. I mean, I love her fucking character in this movie. She's one of the best things about this movie. I love it. And I love that she's so fucking flawed. Yeah. Yeah. She's actually not a great person. <laughs> she's really not. I mean, she's, she's not a very good mom, yeah. but we'll get well, into all that. Yeah. And the, the film does have its accolades. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the MTV Movie Awards, it was nominated for Best Movie, and it won Best Villain. Fangoria Chainsaw Awards gave it a Best Wide Release Film, Best Actress, and Best Score. So I didn't add something into the document because I was looking at the list of accolades from the Vangoria Chainsaw Awards that year. It was nominated for Best Wide Release Film, but also nominated for Worst Film. That's stupid. Yeah. So I was like, either that's a typo or that's just really fucking dumb. Yeah. So, I don't know. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Score, but it won Best Horror Film and Best Actress. I'd like to know what won Best Score. Yeah, I need to look that up. That'd be interesting. Yeah. So, the success of The Ring paved the way for American remakes of several other Asian and Japanese horror films, including The Grudge, from 2004, Dark Water from 2005, which is also by the original author of The Ring, by the way, mm-hmm. and Shudder and The Eye, both from 2008. And uh, there's a bunch of others like Pulse and things like that, right? There's a ton. Yeah. So I, I remember like right around like the mid 2000s to late 2000s aughts, like there seemingly was a lot of American remakes of like Asian horror movies. And it all has to do with like phones and shit. Like yeah. a lot of it. I mean, a lot of like Japanese horror movies have to do with technology, right? Yeah. And, and like water. and water, so um, but there was a lot of them, and some of them are really good, and some of them are really bad, you know, in my opinion. But in almost all the instances, I would say, well, actually, all the instances, I would say that the the actual Asian movie is leaps and bounds better than the American one. But certain movies, like sometimes The Ring and The Grudge, like stand out as like really excellent movies. Either that stand on their own as good or better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's subtle changes to those two movies in particular that make them different than their predecessor. We actually, I feel like remakes get a bad rap, like international remake remakes, mm-hmm. but I feel like we've gotten some really good ones like quarantine. Oh yeah. Like from wreck. 
Yeah. Yeah, I really like Quarantine. Wreck and Quarantine were, I thought, really good. You know, The Ring and Ringu, uh, The Grudge and Juwan. But I want to say that we've gotten a lot of good ones, like Let the Right One In. Yeah. I think is another good example. I never watched the one, but I have listened to the score because Michael Giacchino did it. Yeah. I watched the original Norse, not Norse, but (laughs) Norwegian one. So the original is better, but like the American one is okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's not terrible. I didn't feel the need to see it because the first one kind of disturbed me. It's a little highfalutin. But I have... (laughs) Highfalutin. It's a little highfalutin. But I have um, listened to the the score and Michael Giacchino's score for Let the Right One. It was excellent. Uh, The Ring ranked number 20 on the cable channel Bravo's list of 100 scariest movie moments. And I feel like that. What's what part? Which came out of the TV? That's the part they listed. Probably because that was shocking at the time. It really was. Uh, Bloody disgusting ranked at sixth in their list of the top twenty horror films of the decade, with the article saying that The Ring was not only the first American J horror remake out of the gate, it also still stands as the best. I, I don't know when this list came out, but it's discussing from two thousand one to two thousand ten, right? I still would say The Grudge is better than The Ring. But really that's just me okay I really, some people yeah i really love the grudge i i, I kind of love them both kind of equally mm. you know they're very different like the ring was a translation versus i really feel like the grudge just flipped some things around because it still took place in japan well and it's the same director as the original yeah. japanese version yeah he remade you know? it like so, times in different ways yeah. yeah he was just making the same movie over and over again and just adding different things and stuff like that i really want to talk about the grudge mm-hmm. so maybe next summer we can do that um because I feel like that's an interesting conversation to have, like... And how the studios eventually ruin these franchises. Yeah, for yeah. real. I mean, my God, rings, Well, y'all. It's not going to be the last time we compare them. So um, let's talk about her cast a little bit. Okay. Right, so Naomi Watts, I don't know that she's underrated, but shes I feel like she's gone, kind of dropped out of view recently. Uh, previous to this, she was only really known, I would say, for Mulholland Drive. And then after this, she went on to do like Peter Jackson's King Kong, where she did an excellent job. I'm not a huge fan of that movie. No, but she was great. But she had an amazing job to do. Mm-hmm. Such a physical performance uh, as like um, a f- like a flapper, like also like a vaudeville dancer. Mm-hmm. And she had to do like flips and everything. And then The Impossible with Ewan McGregor and a very young Tom Holland, which was an amazing movie. That movie is just like crushing with its sadness oh yeah but i i loved it though because it's so hopeful and then birdman which is more recent and then uh more, much more recently good night mommy which is kind of no one really talked about it came out i saw an amazon preview for it i watched it with you it was all right yeah i mean like the german movie's better you yeah. know but uh yeah so naomi watts as far as the horror genre is concerned right she's been in like every anytime that there's like an american remake of a foreign horror movie, Naomi Watts seems to be in it. Well, because she can do a fucking American accent. Yeah. And almost like no one else can. Because I've seen, like, Rebecca Ferguson is in the uh, Silo series, right? And mm-hmm. she's an amazing actor. I loved her as Rose the Hat in the, the Shining sequel, right? And she's also in Dune. Um, and she's in a bunch of other things. And I love that. But she cannot do a fucking American accent. And it's and it shows and it's cringy. You know, a lot of other, you know, British people, you know, can do it. Better than Americans can do British, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, but like, you can still kind of tell. Like with Naomi Watts, I couldn't tell. I would have just thought no. she was American. It was years. Her and Christian Bale like, are essentially like the best for that accents. You know? And same for him too. It was years before I knew either one of them were not American. Well, he would go to press junkets and just speak an American accent because he thought it was, mm-hmm. you know, more useful. But I mean, so she's in the ring, right? That 
remake of a Japanese horror movie. She's in Goodnight Mommy recently, just a, like either Austrian or German horror movie remake. She was in Funny Games, which is another German horror movie remake. You know, like she's just like the queen of them, yeah. right? And she's so good in all of these movies. I feel like her yeah. genre work is amazing. And Mahalo should, Drive is great. Really? And we should, and more than just horror, right? She's genres across the board. She can do anything. And I just, I, I'd like to see more of her. I would too. And I, I don't think that she's gotten the recognition that she deserves. I don't think she's been nominated for an Academy Award yet. Not even for a Mulholland or anything? Mm-mm, no. Mulholland was too weird for the Academy. But um, she's done another Lynch movie that I haven't seen. I forget the name of now. So this is an anticlimactic statement. But I mean, like, she's she's really good. And she's not afraid to do genre work. Nope. Which I like. Even Birdman is kind of an off-kilter kind of movie. Well, they got a lot of people, at least another person here that's very, very like established and great actor that is not afraid of genre, and that would be Brian Cox. Definitely. Every time I see him, he's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he played Richard Morgan, Anna Morgan's husband, and of course the pseudo-father of you know Samara in this. And of course, he was previously uh, in like the late 70s, right, as Man- in Manhunter, as Hannibal. Yep. Right. And then like the next time I saw him was like in Braveheart, the long kiss. Good night, which I love him in kiss the girls. Then uh, adaptation X two X-Men two sequel Troy, where he plays Agamemnon uh, Zodiac. I don't really remember him in that trick or treat, which he has an amazing comedic horror performance. Love it at the, you know, the height of like Bruce Campbell. And he's like in his seventies when he does it autopsy of Jane Doe, which he did. Uh, and then more recently, HBO succession series. Which he has gotten like Emmy nominations for, and he's I also hear a published author amazing. for yeah. like memoirs and stuff. Like, you know, he's great. Brian Cox is an amazing actor. Like, I like him every time I see him. Again, he also did a good American accent in this. So, I mean, someone else who doesn't get the recognition they deserve, like The Autopsy of Jane Doe, is a frightening fucking movie until the very end. Yeah, I mean, it kind of like. It could have been a five star and then it just flies off the goddamn rails. But he does an excellent job. And that's that's a very limited cast in that movie. And they really do just some amazing acting work to keep you on the edge of your seat through a lot of it. Yeah. And I forgot. I'm sure that we listened. I mean, I'm sure that we gushed about him in our trick or treat episode, too. Probably a little bit. I'm sure. So, yeah. I mean, like he's barely in this, but I mean, he's. He's Brian Cox. He's memorable. He's certainly yeah. memorable, mm-hmm. right? Well, part of that is the script and, you know, the plotting. But, um, you know, uh, also in this is Martin Henderson. I don't remember him from anything before this or really after this because I never really got into Grey's Anatomy, although I I really liked whenever I saw it. Um, I don't know how much he was on Grey's Anatomy. I don't remember him a lot from it. And then he was more recently in X. That's right. He was – I liked – I mean, we both liked X. He's good. He was good in it. I mean, he played like the the producer of the porn, right? And mm-hmm. like, let's just say that he's just as attractive as he ages too. Yeah, he was super like daddy and hot and ex. And uh, the kid, uh, Aiden, was played by David Dorfman, who is now retired and an attorney. I think his last role was like the Lan- one of the Lannister guards on Game of Thrones, randomly, Lord. like back in twenty seventeen. He's now thirty. Oh my god. Really? Yeah, he's 30 years old now. Fuck, that makes me feel old. 13 years older than that? He's only 10 years younger than me. I was apparently the same age as his actresses at the beginning of the movie when this came out, which was, I was in college. Barely. I was like a freshman in college when this came out. This kid. Now, I mean, like, I remember watching The Ring for the first time, right, in the theater when it came out, like everyone else did. And I was just like, all right. 
like a creepy kid. We've seen this so many times in horror movies, blah, 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 old hat, right? But on this watch, I think I appreciated his performance a lot more. He's very distinctive. There's no other yeah. kid really kind of like him. He's not a kid at all. They, they, no. they wrote him like he was an adult. And he talks like an adult. He, acts he like an adult. played it as an adult. He did. And like, <clears throat> even like with the creep, the creepy kid trope, right, that we've seen a million and one times, like he sets himself apart from all of those other like stereotypical characters that we've seen. And I, he's just not, he's not creepy. That's, that's the wrong word. He's matter of fact. Yeah. He's grown up. Yeah. You know? And he's like, like his character is dealing with the situation in the best way he can. And that is to be a grown up about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that kid has been handed a raw deal at every turn in this movie. And like, just when he's sitting in the car and um, his dad, Noah is talking to him and he was just like, you know, I, I, I can't really be a dad. I don't know how to for X, Y, and Z. He's like, but I don't want somebody else to do it either. And that kid's response is it's a conundrum. Yep. Like, I was just like, I love this kid. I do. Like, I feel like if I had a kid, that's exactly how they'd turn out, probably. <laughs> it's a kid named Jim. That's right. And hand me the vodka. For sure. <laughs> he wouldn't be calling me Robert. He'd call me Rachel. It's like he did his mom in this movie, too. But I mean, come on. That kid, was he did a really good job. And I really liked that character a lot more than I did when I saw it, you know. Yeah. And I mean, this still comes out of like Sixth Sense, you know, and everything yeah. else before it, The Shining and all that other stuff. And and there's some other things about it, too. But it's it's definitely, in, you know, independent enough and special enough in the performance. And it was cast well enough and written well enough to be still distinctive. That's true. And I mean, I feel like it stands out. I just I I hate to think that this kid was kind of like lumped into all this and people don't remember it being a better performance than what they do. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough when people do really stoic performances. Mm-hmm. They did not let that kid be a kid other than like showing him drawing pictures, and that's it. That's right. Right. Otherwise, you would never have known on the page, really. So uh, next up, we've got Davy Chase as Samara Morgan, right? And what I didn't realize was uh, uh, the only thing previous that I know of was that she actually voiced Lilo from Leo and Stitch. Okay. It's from my which, blue period, which I've never seen. Um, and she was also the little girl. She was the she was the younger sister of Donnie Darko and Donnie Darko. And I didn't realize that. I didn't know that either. Okay. And then, of course, she went on to do S. Darko, which is the pseudo sequel that I've never seen. I haven't seen it. And, of course, the Ring sequels. And she's still working today. Apparently, she was also on Boy Meets World. Although now been. she is 60 years old. No, she's okay. <laughs> <laughs> she's now not an attorney and she's 60. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Cox stays the same age. Everyone else keeps getting older. <laughs> Um, so she plays Samara. I guess she's also the Samara that climbs out of the TV. So she's doing all those like weird contortions and stuff like that. There was some drama, uh, about some casting with that. And I think I promised a a patron that I would look into that. And I completely spaced. I even like searched before I did my notes. I searched my email and documents for that anecdote Uh and I could not find it. And so there is some sort of anecdote about her casting. That was some drama that she, she replaced someone else that couldn't do it. Okay. But I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll, you know, come back for shooting the flames and talk about it. Or one of our listeners can tell us, uh, share the anecdote about that. We will find the answer one way or another. Yeah. I know that there's Shannon Cochran who played Anna Morgan and just the mother. And she's been in a shit ton of stuff, but never really like a main, like as far as I know. Does she even speak in this movie? I don't think. Yeah, she did. She's like, you were all I wanted or whatever. And then she oh, yeah, yeah. Push pushes her, her in the fucking well. <laughs> she like puts a bag over it. You're all I wanted. <laughs> Eat bag. I was like, if you're going to kill yourself anyway, why'd you kill your child first? You know, whatever. I guess when the, the visions didn't stop. It's true. Because yeah. she was still alive down that well. 
Anyway, uh, we also need to talk about Gore Verbinski, the director. Yeah, because I feel like I feel like I know his name, right? I know the movies that he's directed, and I feel like he's a bigger director than he really is. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I just know him for the rate. Or smaller. And maybe it just it sounds like a famous name. Right. Gore Verbinski. But it's Gore Vidal that I'm probably thinking of, right? One of mm-hmm. our one of our most famous gay writers. Baggett. I know. <laughs> I'm like, but it's Gore Vidal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember when they said the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean was going to be directed by Gore Verbinski. I was like, oh, they got a big one, you know? And I was like, actually, no, at the time, not. No, not really. So he actually started his career in L.A. and rock bands, kind of like Hans Zimmer or even Danny Elfman. Yeah. Uh, but the, he actually transitioned to making eight millimeter short films and eventually uh, got signed to do music videos for bands like Bad Religion and No FX. Oh, so he was on the punk. Yeah, but then he started doing commercials for companies like Nike, Coca-Cola, Canon, United Airlines, with one of his most famous commercials being for Budweiser where the frogs croak the brand name. Yes, that was him. Oh, good. We have him to think of that shit. Why? Er. Zer. <laughs> Fuck but that shit. Why? Er. The only thing worse than that is that fucking Chihuahua wanting Taco Bell. Okay, what about the one where the guy's, like, answering the phone? What's up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Stupid. Whatever. The best commercial of all time will still be that, like, Doritos. Uh, <laughs> the ostrich commercial. Ostrich commercial. <laughs> 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 Which I had never seen. I have only seen that commercial on YouTube. I've never seen it on TV. Me either. Yeah. It's so amazing. That's all I do is I watch <gasps> the commercials afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Those fucking frogs, though. Gore. Verbinski. Well, so obviously that that got him some fame, like, and his just career built very organically. Like, he yeah. does, doesn't seem like he got in via a bunch of money or a bunch of, like, you know, you know nepotism or anything like that. And so uh, previous to this, he did Mouse Hunt with, like, Nathan Lane mm-hmm. uh, and then The Mexican with Brad Pitt, I guess, maybe and Penelope Cruz. I think it's Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, okay. And then after The Ring, he directed Pirates of the Caribbean, Rango, The Lone Ranger, and A Cure for Wellness. I've not seen any of those except for like the first or second, first and second Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, I saw Ringo. It was all right. I haven't seen Ringo. I didn't see. Little, I haven't seen Little Ranger. I did see A Cure for Wellness, and it's creepy as fuck. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's not great, you know. But like visually, it's really, really good. Which I think is where his strengths lie when it comes to horror or movies. Is it his partnerships, right? We're going to get into that. But mm-hmm. across these films, he's been uh, nominated for an Oscar fifteen times with two wins across Ringo and the Pirates of the Caribbean. So, I mean, like, he's he's done blockbusters, obviously, right? And then, yeah. like, blockbusters that were, you know, sort of failed miserably, like The Lone Ranger. Like, I think famously that movie made zero dollars or something like that. Yeah, I think there was also some weird, like, cultural, you know, stuff, stuff with, like, yeah. fucking Johnny Depp dressing up as a Native American, which wasn't great. No. You know, and then, of course, I don't think it came out at the time, but, of course, their lead actor, Army Hammer, shitty name. Ended up being a cannibal, allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly, <laughs> yes, we have to con- continue to do that. Mia Goth is in a cure for wellness, right? It was one of the first movies that I recognized her from, okay. right? Or like she got on my radar with. So I mean, it's just a really odd, very, very visual horror movie, right? Lots of atmosphere, which I think he does really well in this particular movie too. Yep. So, well, Gore Rubinsky was initially inspired to do a remake of The Ring after Walter F. Parks sent him a VHS copy of the Japanese film, uh, presumably Ringu, which he described as intriguing, pulp, and avant-garde. Oh, yeah? Hold on, let me open this beer. Yeah, so the massive success of The Sixth Sense and, of course, the huge popularity of Ringu and The Ring's franchise overall in Asia gave the studio's confidence to greenlight The Ring, especially when considering the recontextualization moment in The Ring that's reminiscent of the uh, things like, you know, 
the sixth sense. Mm-hmm. It's not as big, obviously. No, you know, it's a little less of a twist. But it's enough to make the audience go, oh, without being M. Night Shyamalan t- to death. To death? A beaten over the head with the Shyamalan? Yeah. So zooming out a bit, The Ring is actually based on the novel Ring by Koji Suzuki. Um, that is actually a series that in- contains uh, the books called Ring, Spiral, Loop, Birthday, S, and Tide. I literally know nothing about any of these books. Yeah, so you could go and read all these uh, translated from Japanese, of course. So this series uh, has been made into six film adaptions and two TV series. I didn't know about all these. TV series? The fuck? Really? Really. So the first ring is called Ring Kanzenban, and it's from 1995. And this is the first Japanese film and supposedly the most accurate to the book, but it's not what anyone has seen. What they've seen is the one that came out three years later called Ringu yeah. from 1998, or really called The Ring, but, you know, Japanese say Ringu. And so that's what most people think, but I didn't think there was a movie before it. I didn't know there that's was. That's theoretically more accurate. So it'd be interesting to see and compare. Maybe I'm seeing a Patreon poll coming up. I don't know. Oh. Because there's lots of things here. Then there was The Ring Virus from 1999 for South Korea. And that only exists because South Korea at the time had a ban on Japanese cultural imports, which was lifted in 1998, but the film had already been completed, right? And so this is a South Korean remake just so it would enter their market. Oh, my God. Right? Finally, there was The Ring, The Final Chapter, which is a Japanese 12-episode miniseries. (laughs) And that same year, a sequel series came out called Rosin, which is a Japanese sequel series consisting of 13 episodes. All of this happened before The Ring came out. That's fucking bonkers to me. Right? I should have saved some of this for my fun facts. How fucking popular... For real. ...was that novel, and first of so all. And they were so bonkers about it that South Korea made a copy of it, just be, even though they, you know, crazy. Oh my gosh. I wonder how much money Ringu made in Japan. Maybe they felt like they needed to make a copy to save themselves from North Korea. Probably. Maybe someone was going to die in seven days. They made that movie and uh, they started their inevitable march toward death. And then they're like, let's, let's make the ring virus. Yeah. Let's make the final chapter. Let's For make real. Raisin. And then the ring came out in 2002, the ring two in 2005, still based on the ring, by the way, the yep. original book. And then rings from 2017, also American is based on the second book spiral. And it was originally called The Ring 3D, which is pretty much all you need to know. As far as I know, nothing has been based off of the the other books, the other like four or five books of that series yet. So Rings, that shittacular movie from 2017 is based on one of the novels. Yes. The sequel novel, Spiral. I'm guessing loosely because that was going to be called The Ring 3D. <laughs> the movie is spectacularly bad. Like, and it it takes a lot. For me to say that a movie's bad, listeners, y'all know by now. Like, I'm like usually pretty gracious with things, but I watched that movie and I on DVD, like, I didn't go see it in the theater, but I, I rented it from Redbox or some shit. And I was like, what in the actual fuck am I looking at? It really is just a terrible movie that I kind of want to watch again just because it was so fucking bad. Well, maybe that can be in the poll. I don't know. Or maybe we'll just do Ringu. Yeah. I mean, it that could be any of these. Way. I mean, obviously, I don't think we can watch. Like 12 or 13 episodes of a no, series. And some of these we, we might not be able to find. So we might just have to do Ringu. The thing is, that I, I mean, I've seen Ringu before, right? I have too. S- and several I think times. I remember it being a little bit scarier, just less interesting. It, it is scarier than the American version, yeah. for sure, right? But I feel like a lot of these... It's more adult, because it's not a little girl. Right. You know? 
so I mean, well, and I feel like I feel like these Asian horror movies are boundary pushing, right? And and are just truly frightening. Yeah. When you watch them, I feel like Japanese directors are not afraid to like really get you scared visually, right? And um, I don't know. I'm just like the the Asian horror movies are really really good. Sometimes gross. You know, but like Ringu is no exception. It's it's a really good, very scary horror movie. Yeah. Um, which I didn't see until after I saw The American Ring, but I was just like, wow, this movie's better. Right? I remember like in The Grudge better than Juan, but Ringu about the same as Ring for different reasons, though. Yeah. Something like that. And I would very, I, I'm pretty much like with that, you know, I, I feel like Juwan is a good movie, right? I still like Juwan better than Ringu as far as like Asian horror movies go. I think I just like the plot of the grudge better than Ring. Well, it just adds a whole nother layer to it. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. But one of the scariest horror movies that I've ever seen in my entire life is the sequel to Juwan. So Juwan 2 okay. is just completely frightening. Okay. So I... I don't know. I mean, like, I think this opens up a lot of conversation and things that we should probably do more often on the podcast. Right. So I was watching the ring and I was thinking to myself, like, we really haven't done a whole lot of like, you know, international horror. Yeah. I want to do rec. I want to do like compare and contrast rec and quarantine. quarantine. I want to compare and contrast grudge with Juwan. And I want to watch the orphanage. You Mm -hmm. know, I want to watch Luke and do the orphanage and Pan's Labyrinth and do like a Guillermo del Toro thing with like Hellboys throwing or something. You know, a lot of these can be put into our like blockbuster times. And I think it's important for people to realize, especially horror fans, like if you if you haven't gone sort of like international and watched some of these movies that you have to sort of seek out that are not in, you know, our language, like you're missing out. Like we did really. a little bit of that with like we did Autoratos, right? We did Autoratos. Terrified. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like we haven't, we've done some, you know, but I've, you know, we need to pay a little bit more attention, I feel. But I mean, like listeners, I'd like to hear from you guys. Like, what do you feel about international horror? Do you watch these movies? Right. Yeah. Um, Are you even willing to? Because I feel like sometimes, at least on social media, when it comes to horror, people don't really talk about them as much as they do American movies. It's just like things have shifted away from like J-horror and more into like the French extremity. And now like we're getting other places, you know, uh, I feel like like we're getting a lot of like South America Mm -hmm. uh, now. It's going to be, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And it's like, uh, I'm equal opportunity. I, and same. I mean, like I am not opposed to watching, you know, international films. We do it all the time. Yeah. Right. So I'm really excited to we just watch that. Uh, what was it? Like Mexican, uh, about the old people that ended up being aliens. Oh yeah. The smelterly. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even out yet. God. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean like Mexican horror, like it's all really, really good. Yeah. So be equal opportunity, everybody. Is my I'll get off my soapbox now. Okay. Well, back to the ring. Korvinsky <laughs> <laughs> uh, admitted he didn't want to uh, cast a big stars. He wanted the film to be discovered, you know, and uh, describes the way the wave of harsh criticism from hardcore fans of the original Japanese film is inevitable. Although he expressed desire for them to find the remake equally compelling, he also sought to retain the minimalism prevalent throughout the ring, and set it in Seattle due to its wet and isolated atmosphere. And he does build atmosphere throughout he really does and the ring was filmed on location across washington state including seattle port townsend Woodby island which i've been there which is great uh and makes sense and with the exception of the lighthouse which was actually the the acuna head lighthouse in newport oregon still it's that northwest you know passage the northwest <laughs> coastline yeah. really that is you know uh you know all the setting for a lot of these 
where it's like never really quite sunny and, you know, it's kind of oppressive a little bit, but it's also always rainy and, Mm -hmm. you know. There's something about watching this movie because, like, it's raining throughout a lot of it, right? When it's Seattle. Well, originally they were going to have like a dairy Maine type of situation to put in the Northeast. Oh. Right? It was going to be like Maine or Massachusetts. No, I feel I feel like this fits. You know what I mean? Like, this is a movie where the the actual atmosphere and climate of the setting like plays an important part in how you feel while watching this movie. Yeah, right. There's something very like I want to say sad and depressing. You know what I mean? But that's not quite the case. You know, I've never been to Seattle, but like, but when something is raining like all the time, right, and sort of gloomy, it adds to the way you feel about it. And I feel like a lot of this movie feels sad and inevitable right which is what you're supposed to feel because these people are like literally gonna die in a couple days you know a week right and like the entire atmosphere lends itself to that like nobody's fucking happy in this movie the atmosphere is not happy and when you're watching it you're like okay and yet it's haunting and beautiful. Yes, time. very much so. Right? So it's hard to, to really like put a pin on exactly what it is. Exactly. But it's an atmosphere. It is. And also I feel like, is that what Seattle just looks like? Or did they do something digitally to make it seem rainier or gloomier? Or just like... It's like they, they did something that's actually more like an Asian high-rise apartment building. Because like, yeah. there's no high-rise apartment buildings like really like that like in Seattle. right? Okay, like they're, right. The zoning is... Don't get, get me on a soapbox about the zoning in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> right that was a little weird but of course they filmed it there so i don't know um you know certain angles but uh, and they didn't really view like they didn't really show us the beauty of seattle itself even though they were there on location probably on purpose mm-hmm. and then the more isolated things just right outside of seattle like would be island and like a bunch of other, other places where it's just like lush forest but cloudy all, and drizzly all the time you know when it's not just like the height of summer so you know it's a d- very distinctive looking movie so my cousin and her wife just moved to Seattle like a little over a year ago and I need to go visit because I've never been and I really, really want to fucking go to Seattle. Yeah. So now I'm just going to go on a ring tour and be like, oh my God. Take me you can go places. to that lighthouse and take your picture there. That's right. Let's go to Oregon. Now that I'm in Seattle, let's go to Oregon and go to that lighthouse. Well, speaking of which, that excellent cinematography was done by Bohan Bazelli, um, also known for Pumpkinhead, <laughs> Boxing Helena, Body Snatchers from 1993, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Hairspray, The Lone Ranger, Pete's Dragon, that's David Lowry from the green Knight, you know a cure for uh, wellness uh, underwater with Kristen stewart uh, which is an excellent looking film and peter pan and wendy also by david lowry so he's coupling with this director gore verbinski as well as david lowry uh, for a lot of these and uh, this is one of those best looking films in my opinion like they did a lot of film coloring that green that greenish haze not quite like the matrix that mm-hmm. had done it you know this is following the string of late 90s like fight club and you know, and things like that, where they're starting to add browns and sepias into the film and silvers in the tone to like bring the blacks out. And so like with this, they gave it green to give that sickly unnatural feel. Um, you know, they relied on a lot of like backwards photography and backwards movement and things like that. I feel like there's a lot of excellent and interesting cinematography going on in that like avant-garde student film, like ring video, which is very stream of consciousness. Yeah. If you look back and you think about Samara's experience falling into the well and her mother and just images of a comb going through hair and, and a mirror and some of it's very obvious and some of it is more of an allusion to what things felt like, you know, like the nails going through the, through her fingernails and things like that. You know, you see that in that video, uh, people drowning, you know, on mass, you know, in, in water and stuff. And it's, it starts to make more and more sense than where you think about it. And there's visual allusions to it, whether the characters or the audience know it or not, 
throughout that movie that was done with a lot of visual storytelling. And I don't think this movie gets enough credit for it. It really does not because, so I watched it twice in preparation for this. Okay. Right? So we will get into some of the reasons why, but on my second rewatch before this, like I really was, I, I rewound the part where she watched it for the first time. Right. Yeah. And I feel like I, I've maybe seen this movie like four times now. So in the theater, when it was released on DVD and then these last two times. And I've never really paid that close attention to the video, except that it's creepy and off-putting, right? But like on this second rewatch, I was literally paying attention to like every fucking frame. Everything is there for a reason. And it's so fucking neat and terrifying. And then you start to notice like other things throughout the movie. I mean, some of it is really in your face, like yeah. the fucking ladder against the wall. Yeah, and some whatnot. of it, like they can't help but notice, but, but of other things that you start noticing maybe. So the creepiest part in that fucking videotape is when it switches to all those people sort of like squirming together, drowning on mass. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like my stomach dropped out. And I was like, that is the creepiest fucking image ever. Like it's just, and I always thought it was like maggots or something like that, but I'd like stopped and paused it and looked at it. And I was just like, that's really fucking creepy. And it reminds me of like, this is a transition into like, you know, more technological horror that actually started trying to imitate J horror in a way and like white noise. Yeah. And it was kind of, it made me think about white noise a little bit with some of the things that they were showing on the TV a little bit. I do love those references though. I think yeah. that's neat. Cause it also plays into the fact that this, ghost or child or whatever is using its ability to like etch things into people's brains right and there's a lot of production design to do that too like yeah. that tree like they, they that whole red red tree or whatever that mm-hmm. was not a real tree they handmade that with like paper mache and like paper leaves and shit and of course they had to do that set where it was all etched into the wall and everything so did you also so when you're watching when she's watching the tape and they show that tree and it's sort of black and whitish it reminded me a lot of gods and monsters right it's kind of like that tree on the hill in that movie too interesting so i was like how many times are we going to see the tree from frankenstein or something like that I mean, maybe it's a little homage or whatnot, but... I think there's a lot of hidden homages in this. I agree. On this watch, I was reminded of Kubrick several times. Okay. With The Shining, like the symmetrical shots at the beginning of the kid on the staircase, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and then later in the hallway walking up. Everything's super symmetrical, and he's like standing straight. You know, I almost expect him to open his mouth and say, "Come play with me," Mm -hmm. you know, or something. And there's a little bit uh, of an aerial, some beautiful aerial shots. Some like world class aerial shots in this movie that I think is are don't aren't fully appreciated that also remind me of the slow pan ups of uh you know the some of the shots in the shine at the beginning of the shining mm-hmm. right and also the shining is based uh, their their theme is based on d s e ray and there's a lot of d s e ray in this score as well, which is of course by Hans Zimmer, and this remains one of my favorite horror scores of all time for a lot of reasons. You do. And this isn't the first time that we've talked about this. Obviously, we're going to talk about it now because we're talking about the movie. Yeah. But way back in our very second episode, yep. you talked about this in conjunction with Goblin score for Suspiria, right? So maybe yeah. he got a little something from that. Too? It's an undocumented homage, right? But, you know, it's an homage to Suspiria that we actually 
played for you almost five years ago in that deep dive of Suspiria, and on this watch, I noticed that it actually starts starts playing for the first time as soon as Anna Morgan is on screen for the first time, looking all Morticia Adams with the rest of the people. Remember yeah. those like, all those people that are like island garb or whatever, and their uh-huh. white dresses, and she's like black. Yes, yeah, she looks right? like she's from the 1800s. Like kind of alludes out. with the light motif that she is actually kind of a witch or is interested in that sort of thing and that might be having part of the of the problem that we find out with like the next movie and other things that she is susceptible to at least you know whether Samara's adopted or not mm-hmm. that she's part of it she's part of the problem you know what I mean and so they start playing that like that uh, witch score that's in Suspiria it kind of makes it a little bit more childlike in a way with that sound but that's added to Suspiria but it's also uh, you know, at the heart of the ring score by Hans Zimmer. And so we played the difference for you way back almost five years ago. And I think we'll do so again. Now here's a cut of the ring score. And here's a cut of Suspiria. <laughs> well, they sound a lot alike, right? Obviously, it's a homage, right? Yeah. And Hans Zimmer does an amazing work here. There's obviously, it's haunting, it's beautiful and all that. And sometimes even touching music. But it also has these really deep, dark ramp-ups that go into pure horror moments of, you know, that ramp up the story, you know, and the and the, the trauma and the, the tension. For sure. And I feel like one of the best examples of use of score in this movie is when the horse jumps off the fucking theory. My God. Like, I... Now, now, since since we had that episode on Suspiria, I have gone back to listen to the score of the ring even before I watched it because I was like, okay, it sounds really pretty, and it is. I like it very, very much. But you know, when I'm watching movies, sometimes I get so wrapped up into things that I don't really notice like background music as much as I would with something with lyrics in it. But the music in the ring, my good God, especially in that particular moment, that whole horse moment on the ferry, I was just like, the score right now is so amazing. I was just like, good God. Like, it's just really good. It makes the tension palpable. And I don't know, it's just that that part in the movie is frightening. It took a long time for that soundtrack to come out too, right? Because it wasn't until the ring two where they kind of combined the scores and released them as a single album, even though it was by like three different composers at that point. The Ring never had its own and still does not have its own soundtrack release. Mm. So it's all combined. So we have like the well, like the, there's two really long, like 10 minute something tracks that are really principally by Hans Zimmer. And then you get more and more into like the other composer stuff, but it's still really, really worth, uh, worth it to get. Let's talk about the movie overall. Okay. Right. Like I have some thoughts, like, this is a kind of an interesting movie to look back on because we don't usually think of this as one of those hardcore recontextualization movies like Shutter Island no. or even The Sixth Sense. And I think that's possibly due to the huge explosion of this into pop culture awareness and other ways and other horror movies like kind of riffing off of its semi-original tropes in the years following. You know, it, it's kind of an interesting thing to, to, to come back on because it's not known for its recontextualization because it's not important enough. Recontextualization is very matter of fact, you know, 
it's not like the entire movie falls apart without it, like Sixth Sense would or Shutter Island in a way, in some ways. Well, it is it. Those are the endings. Yeah. You know, I feel like this movie could have ended in two different places. It could have ended and then had that sequel, which come you know starts with that fourth act. You know? Correct. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, like I wasn't completely shocked the first time I saw this movie. You know that it continued after like the proper burial, quote unquote. All right, because I was like they're not wrapping things up neatly enough. There's got to be something else coming. And um, what is shocking though, is like the actual moment where that girl comes out of the television, right? When Samara comes out, but yeah. And I, I think I want to talk about that. Those moments, those specific moments a little later. Okay, good. All right. Cause there are many. Yeah, there are, but I think like a lot of us forget on rewatch so many years later that no one really knew what the ring actually was going in. Um, it was a mystery and it had the the horror movie fans a buzz, which sent even more horror fans into the theaters to find out what the ring was kind of mm-hmm. like the matrix or something, right? You have to see it to know, you know, but based on the trailers and the marketing, the ring was the telephone ring with Samara saying seven days, but the ring is everything else. The ring is everything. in this. Yeah, movie. it really is. And so like, I was going to ask you, what did you think the ring was going in versus what do you think it is now? Well, based on like the the poster had an actual ring on it, like a circle. But you didn't know what it was. But I didn't it was know just what it was. Like a coffee stain. <laughs> yeah, and I had never exactly, and I had never seen Ringu at that point, you know. And so, like going into it, I was just like, I have, I literally had no idea. So apparently, a lot of people thought it was the ring, the phone ring. That had never even fucking occurred to me. <laughs> no, that's silly. To me. <laughs> a lot of people think that apparently, like that's like the internet's consensus is what it was the phone ring. But now the ring, the phone calling you, telling you you're going to die. Right. That's the whole premise, oh. apparently from the marketing and the trailers. Right. Because that's all they could could really show. I mean, after I'd seen the movie, I didn't I still didn't think that was why it was called the ring. So I'll, I've always I'm very visual. Right. And okay. so I always just, you know, the ring is what she saw when she died, which was the light ring around the, the well capper. Well, see, right? and then she's like, looking up at the well and it's that light ring coming through. And that is the ring is the last thing she saw before she died. Yes. And that's kind of what's on the poster. Right. So that's what we can see visually as the ring. But you didn't know it was a well. No, I didn't. I did not know it was until a well. you see until you about, you know, four fifths through that movie. You didn't know what it was. And then about halfway through the movie, I was like, maybe the ring is just like the never ending cycle of people watching it and then dying, people watching it and then dying. Exactly, right? So although the meaning of the title The Ring is ambiguous, Koji Suzuki, the author of the original novel, always intended it to mean the cyclical nature of the curse, having to watch the tape, get cursed, and copy the tape cycle beginning again, right? Rather than the phone ringing. Listeners, let us know. Did you just think it was the, when you think of the ring, do you think of the phone ring? Or do you think of the well ring? Did you think of the the plot ring? Like, are you thinking about all those things? I mean, and also, I mean. Put a ring on it. Call us. (laughs) If you like it, then you put put a ring on it. How, this movie's kind of dated too. And Uh what what struck me really, really. It's over 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck, God, you're right. 21 years old. Um, (laughs) A good drink. (laughs) The ring could drink. In October, I was watching the movie this time and I was just like, my God, how dated is this? And it's only been 20 years. How much have things changed in 20 fucking years? Well, it's just funny, right? Because it's like anything that came out in like 2007, 
is going to look dated compared to everything that came out in 2008, simply by the use of smartphones in movies. That's true. Right. So, it was just so it's like, like you got to give it a break. You do. And you have to just remember when, when things are made, you know, that's why I added all those jokes into the synopsis. I was like, she works for a fucking newspaper, right? Newspapers are essentially dead at yeah. this point. Right. Well, at least the printed version of them. Yeah. And then like, it's all about these landlines ringing and like answering machines and things like that. And I was just like, okay, well, what if you watch the tape and you only have a cell phone for Samara to call you on, but your phone's on silent? Well, it's like now it's like it loses some of its edges. It's like, okay, well, I guess we're safe because no one has a fucking VHS player. That's anymore. right. No one's going to watch it because the tape can't exist. But then again, if I do happen to see it, how am I going to make a copy of it? At the same time, though, it, this is now Samara's world, right? Because if she can etch things into paper walls, VHS yeah. tapes, and brains... You can bet she can make a viral fucking TikTok video. That's true. You know what I mean? And that's something that she's instantly the world's dead. You know what I mean? So it's like it's either it's so out there now that she would just win. There's no stopping it. That's true. You know, it would have to be like governments finding this thing and shutting it down on servers and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's no there's no amount of sleuthing and burning video chesses that would save us in in this situation now. And by God, if they were to remake this movie today and it was on a DVD, like I couldn't fucking burn a DVD to well, who the like, fuck copy of it. I mean, yeah. like, what the fuck? I yeah. mean, like, I'm just dead. I'm going to have to die. <laughs> Jesus. You have to you have to share it on TikTok is what happens. <laughs> yeah, you're Sharing right. is yeah. <laughs> like, Chris, check your messages. <laughs> <laughs> as long as everyone just keeps sharing it, you know. Another ring. Oh, Jesus. I was just, I was struck by this. I was just like, my God. Like it doesn't to me, it doesn't seem that long ago. Like 2002 does not seem that long ago to me. It doesn't feel like 20 years. Right. But when I look at like technology and the way that things have changed throughout my entire life, you know, I was like, it's kind of fascinating that something just 20 years ago seems so obsolete at this point. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. It makes me feel. So watching this movie, I was also struck by the economy of storytelling, which I kind of mentioned earlier. I feel like the film goes at a breakneck pace. Yes. And nearly constantly gives us bits of exposition kind of folded in, you know, more like a mystery movie than a horror movie. And Verbinski and his cinematographer, Bazzelli, used like these quick montage vignettes of almost like nature photography style shots to signify time passing, sometimes only five or 10 seconds long, like rain on the windshield and some genuinely excellent aerial shots that I mentioned earlier of the Washington, Oregon coastlines and countryside Mm -hmm. just to signify that time passes because this is not a long movie, right? And there's a lot of days happen. You know, we've got those title cards, a la the shining Tuesday. I know. And so, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of economy here and it was done so beautifully, you know, and kind of effortlessly in a, in a way. And you're right when I say that it goes at a breakneck pace. It really does. Like, I feel that there's a part in this movie where it's but it doesn't of, feel that way. It doesn't. No. I mean, it feels like it's things paced are very well paced very, very well. And it like doles out the information that you need at just the right fucking moment. Like a mystery movie. Some of those, you know, scenes like the doctor scene on the island and stuff, it's like that's when people might start getting bored or something like that, where it's just pure exposition and it's like we need another beat of action or something to happen. You know, so it's not a perfect film. We're no, not, we're not trying to like bend over and break our backs to kiss its ass or anything, you know, because there is a point in this movie where it does start to get boring. Like, I, I can't fault Ebert for what he said in his review. Like a lot. Th- there are some moments in here, especially on like these rewatches that I did. And I was like, all right, like, I feel like we don't really need this 
particularly. Like, I don't need him, like, breaking into the basement to get this video only to not find it, only see the record of it, and then tell the other person and blah, blah, yeah. blah, for us to find it later because it was in Brian Cox's house and blah, blah, blah. It's like it, it connects. It's connective tissue that we need, really. Mm-hmm. But it's like I needed more, a little bit more of an action beat because it's like Nancy Drew movieing at us a lot of the time. And uh, we were talking about this off mic, guys, but, like, this is the first time that I realized that she had some sort of psychic ability and they pretty much what? spell it out for you. I never not knew that. What? I didn't realize this. How do you think she was like doing what she was doing? I don't, I didn't ask questions. I was just like, <laughs> the tape just exists and people are dying and there's the body. I was just like, but watching it this time, I was like, Oh my She's God, burning people's arms and her in their dreams. Like, I mean, ghosts can do whatever they want. I don't know. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't connect like some sort of like psychic ability to she like, never sleeps things. Robert <laughs> clearly I don't maybe I just didn't pay that much attention or I was so wrapped up in the movie the first couple times that I watched it that I just didn't pay attention but they they tell you flat out I'm like my god how do they fucking miss this yeah I don't know some people are more interested in other things I'm a, more of like a, a sci-fi nerd and so that sort of thing I'm like I'm trying to figure it out you know to me it made sense in my head it did not make sense to me I just didn't question it I was just like okay it's happening yeah and that's fine too yeah but I was kind of flabbergasted. I was just like, now she does what? You judge things, you know, at their surface where it counts. That's right. <laughs> just like a normal gay man. <laughs> I'm a normal gay man. But like, I love that you said earlier, like uh, the technology and it feels kind of dated because like, it also it just it does feel like a transition moment between that scream era with the meta storytelling phones as a source or, you know, phones in that kind of level of technology as a source of horror dawn of the internet and the exploration of upending horror tropes in a way that only J horror could at the time. That's true. Like in this, you can't win. You're fucked. Finding the body solved nothing. A big cinema moment uh, here with, you know, upending expectations. Like why isn't the movie over? They found the body. Exactly. You know, and then she tells her son, he says, you weren't supposed to help her. She doesn't sleep. The entire audience at that point, back in 2002 or whatever the fuck this was, took like a unified breath, you know, at at once. Like, oh, the movie is not over. This is a recontextualization of the trope. Like, this is subverting the trope, you know, and I think it was really and still is effective. I agree. I mean, I just from that one moment, like that, that boy delivers that line in such a way, you know, and the look on his face is very adult like, like he has been the entire time. And he's like, why? Like, you didn't need to do any of that. You shouldn't have done any of that. And then we get to like the really, really horrific part of this movie. And it was really obvious to him that she is the bad guy, you know, mm-hmm. and to the mom, it didn't occur to her that he would have understood that innately. I mean, she just, she literally thought that that girl. Oh, she's a little girl, poor little girl. I'm going to ignore the fact that everyone that had anything to do with her wants to kill themselves or did, Mm -hmm. you know, including all the fucking animals and all the dead bodies that have already happened because of her and because of that tape. Her fucking niece. You know? Yeah. I mean, for for half the movie, she's trying to figure out why the mom has something to do with it, right? I mean, that's another mystery aspect, right? Red herrings left and right, you know? She's like Agatha Christie all over this movie. Mm -hmm. But, um... Well, she's really self-satisfied, you know, with her journalistic ability. And you get that from moment one. And that was very intentional on the filmmaking part. The way she talks to her boss. I would never talk to my boss that way, even though I hate him. You're fired. No, I'm not. No, you're fired. No, I'm not. Go away. Fantilious prick. Like the alliteration. She's like, go away. I'm cooking too good of a story. (laughs) But that false ending really did subvert the horror trope in a new and interesting way that the American audiences just weren't used to. And I think that we take for granted when we look back at it now. That's true. I mean, and I, 
the thing is, is like th- this is a good false ending with a, a twist that is believable and like it's not as shocking as things like yeah, the it's not an said. obvious or important twist. It's literally just the characters understanding what's actually happening. Right. It's it's it is the ending of the movie. Yeah. You know, and like I wasn't I wasn't shocked by it for for those reasons. I was shocked for other reasons. It doesn't feel like a Shyamalan intentional fuck you to the audience. Right. You know what I mean? Which the sixth sense kind of is, as enjoyable or good as it is. You know, it's they intentionally keep things from the audience versus Mm -hmm. the perspective of this woman. You know, she's trying to find things out and she's using the heuristics, the rules of thumbs about children, Mm -hmm. you know, and about what her own horror, you know, savviness might be in this universe. Is she, you know, horror movie savvy, you know, uh, genre, whatever they call it. What genre? Genre savvy. Genre savvy. And, uh, you know, and she thinks she is, but she's not. I mean, and by God, we all kind of did too when we were watching this. We're she like, did exactly what the American audiences would have expected her exactly. to do. You know? That's what you're supposed to do. You find the body of the person, you put it to rest, right? It's very it's very Christian, you know? Yeah. You have something in your notes here that we haven't touched on yet, but I want to make sure that we do since um, it's here. But you said the grudge did this too, right? Yeah. Upending a horror trope. Uh-huh. So normally you can just leave a haunted house, right? Mm-hmm. But not in the grudge. It doesn't care if you're in daylight on a bus or wherever the fuck you're fucked. And th- this is what, this is what J horror is yeah. to its core, right? It's just like something happens to you and you can't stop it. You know, it you is can't inevitable. rely on normal conventions of mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I'm in the daylight or I'm in public or anything else. It does not give a shit. I mean, movies like Pulse, movies like Juon, movies like Ringu, right? I mean, like everyday situations, people are like dying and they're being like subjected to whatever curse or ghost or whatever has befallen them. Right. And it's just very everyday and just truly, truly fucking frightening. Well, it just re- reminds me of also like Alterados, Terrified, right? Yeah. The things I like best about that. You cannot rely on your normal conventions because we do not understand what's happening here. We're scratching at the surface. And that's part of the story is that we don't understand. Yeah. And none of these people have the answers. They're all just like, you know, highfalutin <laughs> doctors or psychologists <laughs> from these rando universities or something. Or they're just like writing these books and they're trying to figure these things out and they're all fucking dying because they, you know, of essentially their own hubris. Yeah. I love the ending of this movie though. So let's talk about some of these moments so we can get to that. Yeah. So to me, basically everything with Naomi Watts and the kid, I love how professional their relationship is. (laughs) What a good way to describe it, you know, and how easily and well-established it's set up that dynamic with like the little details and how self-satisfied she is with herself for her journalistic skills that actually amount to nothing. And, you know, in the end, other than saving her son, barely by happenstance, she's not really the best person. And I love that for us. She's really not. She's not a good person in this movie. Mm. Right. And there are often times where I will find a character that is kind of this unlikable on paper right and just it will ruin the movie for me i'm like she's not likable but she is she's still likable to me because she's so unlikable i I like there's also a lot of subtext in this movie right everything that's not said like uh she's you know her ex or whatever's helping her with the video as soon as his like new girlfriend comes along that's when she kind of shuts down oh yeah and then she snaps at him she bites his head off at the elevator for no reason She's like this is the part where you said that thing you flake out and was like you're the one that left he was helping you that's right he offered to continue to help you and she's throwing a fit yeah she's like, this where i tell you to left. grow up right and so it's like the audience is now tempted to stay to remain on her side or just really kind of get educated that this person is really kind of all about herself 
And I love how, like, you talked about visual storytelling, and I feel like this goes along with acting, too. I think actors can convey a lot about past or, like, interpersonal relationships just based on their actions and body language and sometimes dialogue. But, like, in this particular movie, it's clear they have a history, right? And that truth bomb about Aiden being their son is not quite that shocking as they make it out to be. No, and I don't think they were, I don't know that they were trying to. Maybe they were. I don't know that, that why would they think the audience really cares? It's just something that, you know, makes people raise their eyebrows a little bit, adds a little bit of oomph interest, yeah. you know, in the moment. But but there's there's a lot of clarity in the way that these three main characters interact with each other that show you like just the level of history they have. It's super ha- distinctive. Yeah. Right? And how like, involved a, they are with each other. I feel like I have a very good feeling of who this character is yes. and all three of those characters really are really for real. And I really wholeheartedly disagree that these characters aren't fleshed out. Like I feel like they're doing oh. like, a huge amount of economy with a little bit of script, and a lot of subtext and visual storytelling that's going on. I feel like even some of the smaller characters in this script are kind of fleshed out. The really babysitter. Well. <laughs> but she was great. Yeah. Well, Sarah Rue, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck, I love her. She's great on popular. I mean, like every everyone. I mean, like her sister does a really good job with very little to do in this movie. Like she starts the entire fucking investigation, you know? And it was like that conversation that gives you that first like glimpse into what the face looks like after you've seen Samara, you know? Yeah. Like some of the really, really scary moments. Even the doctor, you know, Brian Cox, we've already said, is barely in the movie, but I feel like they don't have to do a bunch for you to get all their backstory you know exactly how they feel at every single time and when even when they're talking about other things like he's in the house and he's talking about his work and he's like as soon as something breaks another thing needs fixing right you know he's talking about other things and like his illusions get more clear that he's talking about the samara situation mm-hmm. and his past and it just really feels almost more real world because he's not going to explain in some sort of you know m night Shyamalan heavy exposition moment nope. explaining the plot they don't really sit around explaining the plot like that except for one moment where it's kind of going into the flashback of what happened to Samara when she holds onto her body in the well. Oh, we kind of need that anyway. We do, too. and it doesn't bother yeah. me. It doesn't it doesn't bother me at all. You know, and I feel like we we need that flashback because that kind of like shows more of what the video is showing us already. I wish it had been kind of more intermixed with the video so you really get that that video was stream of consciousness from Samara. Yeah, that would have helped me a lot back in 2002 when I would have realized she had some sort of psychic ability to make a tape with her mind. Almost like extended scenes or transitory scenes within the video. Yeah. To the real life memories of her would have been more interesting. Like some sort of like quick flash. Not more interesting, maybe. But But helpful. Yeah. And maybe it would have been too heavy handed then. I don't know. Maybe. Whatever. Anyway. Yeah, this movie is what it is, so it's fine. Other moments, uh, the original opening death seems cheesy now with its, like, Dolby shock of her face or whatever. But I remember in the theater, like, jumping and, and really being kind of disturbed by the by the makeup they had done. Yeah. No, I think it's truly frightening what they do to Ever Tamblin right there in that closet. Because, yeah. I mean, like, all we see when she dies is, like, water and then, like, a really quick zoom to her eyeball, you know? Yeah, and yeah, she looked like she had been a corpse for a long time. And I was like, this is when the makeup department and the script have a mismatch. Yeah. Right? Because the mom's talking about it. They don't know. I've sent her to like her body to like everyone and they've all done tests and no one can really explain why her her heart stopped. And like no one's mentioning that she looked like, I don't know, like a fucking gutted Muppet that had been in the sun for yeah. five years. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's what you would look like maybe after seven days in a well. I don't know. But like, yeah, you're right. Because she's like, I spent four hours on the Internet. You know, and nobody now you could spend four minutes on the Internet and get probably as much information if yeah. not more. But, you know, that quick cut to I saw her face and then snap, you know, you see it. And it's 
not as brief as when you see Noah's face at the end. Like that's really fucking quick. But yeah. I don't know. Like I said in the fucking synopsis, it looks like the most horrific fucking orgasm face of all time. Yeah, and I feel like if they all really looked like that from that makeup department, like people would they would have connected those fucking murders. You know, I know they'd be like, "Why are all these people dying with this horrible face? We don't need Naomi Watts to do this. Like somebody could have done it like from a much higher up news outlet." That's all. Margaret Thatcher naked on a cold day. <laughs> <laughs> what a very specific mental image that makes. <laughs> they saw the video. Uh, so um, that goddamn horse scene. Mm. And I was like, how did they do that? Because it looks so real. There's no CG there, as far as I can tell. No, it looks real. That horse real. looks like it is falling off, like hit its leg on the ledge. Mm-hmm. And then topples over and lands in the water. And then you see, of course, the blood, right? Which is separated. Huge edit cut, right? You know, they're running across the boat to to the back to see what happens. You know, but apparently the horse's dive into the water was uh, simulated by filming the animal actually jumping over a low rail in front of a green screen. Okay. And then they kind of cut it out and flipped it in such a way with a moving camera to where it looked just like it had been filmed like that. And then, of course, they shot, you know, some of the the horse swimming and that's it. Right. But it looks so real because it's all in camera. You know, even though that was green screened, it was done in such a way that even back then just looked amazing. I love this moment in the movie. And I I don't know what. First of all, because it's both infuriating and fascinating to me. So my favorite camera shot in this entire movie is the close up of the horse's eye. Mm. I just fucking love that. Right, where you kind of see Naomi watch this yep. reflection in it. And I was just like, oh, you It's know? also from the intercut with the video. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those references, right? And I was just like, oh my God, it looks so good. And then it's simultaneously infuriating to me because Naomi Watts, again, super full of herself and can't back off. It's her character. Mm-hmm. She goes to pet the horse and the horse is like having none of it right away. And she pets it two more fucking times. Yeah, and she's like, calm down. I just want to self-soothe. <laughs> it's nothing to do with you. <laughs> She keeps petting the horse until it jumps out and then dies. I was just like, lady, maybe sometimes you need to back off. Come on. Yeah. I just feel like she's like backing away from the ledge. You know, it's like, well, that was rough. Yep. Cappuccino. <laughs> she's like, sorry about your horse. <laughs> Over at the island. <laughs> they should have had at least a couple moments of her like saying she's sorry to that little girl. Well, there's this is I'm telling you, this movie runs at such a fast pace. There's a lot of connected tissue that could be there, like if it was a mini series or something. Right? I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. And maybe like these these series that have already been made, you know, are worth the watch. You know, I mean, they have to be. I don't know if this scene was in the book. I don't. I really want to read the book now. Yeah. I want to watch the original Ring that came out before Ringo. Yes. Because it's supposed to be the most book accurate, but I don't know. I, mean, I may need to save that until after I read the book. But it's probably a lot more like low budget, you know, so it's like a paper mache horse. I don't know. So my only experience reading like Japanese fiction that later turned into a Japanese horror movie, a J-horror movie, is Audition. And the novel Audition is, to me... Again, it's, it's far superior to the movie audition. God, I would like to know which other J-horrors came from books. I wonder if like Tale of Two Sisters or is that Korean? That's Korean. But I mean like Asian horror in general. It, yeah. it could have. You know, I wonder if Juan did even. And well, also the thing is, is that like Japanese culture, and I'm not an expert on this by any means. And I know we have a patron who is, or at least knows more about it. Like I feel like a lot of Japanese horror, Asian horror is built upon like 
myth, right? Yeah. And, and like urban legend. The grudge actually could have come out of, you know, just like I know what you did, you know, last summer and stuff like that. It came out of something else. It feels like a, a Suzuki novel, but it's actually maybe not based on anything. And it's actually came out of how popular The Ring was. And yeah. so they're doing something else that's also based on those spirits. And I have some information about those types of spirits coming up. Oh, and some fun facts. Mm-hmm. Okay. What other moments in this movie do that you That like? goddamn fly. That goddamn fly. On the TV screen. On the, yeah. When she's like backing up. And it's creepy. Right? It is. Like she's on pause or whatever. And she's trying to like. And she just plucks it. Yeah. And you can see it's it's little wing twitch. Mm-hmm. Even though it's paused and stuff. I was like, Jesus. That still kind of creeps me out. I'm telling you, everything about that video, that fucking video is just. Which is coughing up that goddamn like. Electrode. Electrode. Yeah. Because you think it's like hair or something like yeah. that. It's like yarn. I'm like, Whoa. I mean, it's an, that's an extended scene. I feel like she's retching for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, just take it out already. <laughs> God. But <laughs> rip it out. <laughs> the video, the video in this movie is truly, truly frightening. It's very, very off putting. And I feel like if I were watching that or if someone put that on, I would never make it to the end of it. You know, I'd be like, nope, I'd walk out of the room. I turned it into a VHS and I left it for my sister. Like, <laughs> yeah. I love it. I copied it and I like, yeah, I, I did some fuckery with that. You're a good brother. I am. <laughs> but finally, I think we would be remiss. I also called her cell phone and left her a message <laughs> when I knew she wouldn't be able to answer. And I, and I did it from like a different phone number. Uh, Cause at the time I think I worked at, at like singular wireless. Okay. Right? So I did it from a different phone number and I was like seven days and I knew she was going to go see it that night. And so she had listened to the voicemail before she. I fucking love it. It's amazing. I wish that kind of, I knew that kind of relationship with my brother. <laughs> he would have figured it out though. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, Samara coming out of the TV. Like that's one of the most scary and shocking reveal moments I've seen in the theater up to that point. But now it seemed kind of tired, which is sad, but it was such a good moment in the theater. It, it really And was. it still looked good for years and years, but now. It, I think, I think it looks good now. It still I looks mean, just like, it's almost like it's trying to do this matrix camera. Yeah. You know, like it's just like moving the camera to the around and it's just like doing this like normally what it would have been a static effect, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> but, but intended. Yeah, it still looks good. It's just a little hokey now, I guess. I think it's still kind of effective. Yeah. Like I, I will say that on my second rewatch. It's her jump, like the, the fast forward jump that she mm-hmm. does up to him. That's what scared most people, I think. Oh, when he like looks at her directly and then is no, like uh, he's backing away because she's crawling out. She stands up, he's backing away slowly, and then she like fast forwards. Oh, like yeah, there's yeah, a little yeah. glitch in the static of her because she looks all black and white and mm-hmm. staticky, and she just jumps forward like it's lightning or something, and she's right next to him, and that's what makes him fall back before her hair parts, and that's when like I was watching this with my sister and like she jumped out of her skin, and of course I remembered that scare. It's it's a good effective scare. I think it's still effective. Like I, I will say that on my my second rewatch of this movie for the podcast, I had the benefit of having a gummy, and I didn't on that first watch. Do you remember watching it in the theater though? Yeah, I like, was I fucking terrified. People got started screaming in the theater when that happened. I don't remember when screaming. They may when have she started coming out of the TV. People were but screaming I, in the theater. Like squirmed and like jumped a little bit, but I was just like, it was really really fucking scary. It was a know? cool effect. We hadn't had like such effects laden. Stuff like that. I mean, because I mean, anything shocking in this movie that was the most because I f- I felt like something was going to happen with the TV, but I didn't think she was going to fucking come out of it. You know, what's sad really is how quickly it was imitated, um, and all a lot of the tropes from this movie are not original, right? But like quickly after this, we got a like a flood of movies. We're still getting them today. I mean, like that movie that we saw at that 
horror movie convention that we got that angry phone call from that director is essentially the same fucking thing. Yeah. Like he, he took the Very ring. Yeah. yeah. And just made it something else, you know? Well, you could say, talk to me is very much like the ring or like it follows in a way, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot more originality in talk to me than some other of these copies that we've yeah. seen. And more power to him to evolve versus yes. mimic. That would be the distinction. Yeah. So, but still a singular fucking horror moment. Yeah. Her for coming sure. to the television. You have some fun facts for me? Yes, I have some fun facts for you. Okay. So several high profile actresses were offered the lead role, including Gwyneth Paltrow, mm. Jennifer Connelly, and Kate Beckinsale. Jennifer Connelly got her a chance to do some J-horror American remake. She saw how good it was and I guess went and did Dark Water, which it's, mm. yeah, it's all right. Um, although I heard, I don't know how true this is, that Jennifer Love Hewitt was also talked to about it, but she did not want to put herself in a situation where she would become a scream queen and locked into that stupid. She should have, yeah. she went on to do fucking ghost whisper. Right. Yeah. Come on now. Want, want. I don't see really, I mean, I could see Gwyneth Paltrow, I guess doing this a little bit, but I feel like, I feel like they really got the right one with Naomi Watts. So this next one is very interesting to me because I don't have further context and maybe I need a DVD with extras because I used to have the DVD and I remember watching him, but I don't remember anything about this. Chris Cooper, which is a big time actor, yeah, played a murderer in two scenes meant to bookend either side of the film, but was ultimately cut. And I don't know what for what reason. He was there was a murderer. Yes. Was it like a subplot or just I don't know. <gasps> I'm assuming. I need to know more about this. Maybe he was a, a big red red herring or something. I really am intrigued by that. Yeah, me too. Okay. But it was cut, and so I don't know. But Chris Cooper is a big deal. So I don't I don't know. He's an excellent actor. Well, actually, listeners, if you know the story about that, if it's lost to time somewhere, it's in a really obvious place, and we just didn't do enough due diligence, let me know. I mean, I have the DVD. I don't remember that being a part of the me either. scenes. But theoretically, there, there was cut. I don't know if it's actual available deleted scenes anywhere. Huh. So I'd yes. love to know what that's about. Tell Maybe us. it has something to do with the with the book. So the tree with the fire red leaves featured in the movie is a Japanese maple. The fruit of this tree is known as Samara. Oh. The type of ghost that Samara and her Japanese incarnation, Sadako, is based on is the mythological Anryo, a Japanese ghost that manifests after dying in the grip of a powerful rage, sound familiar, mm-hmm. and returns as a very pale and physical ghost to seek vengeance on the living. Samara's psychic abilities are known as ninja, which is a form of spirit photography that enables someone to burn images from their mind onto any solid surface just by thinking about them, explaining why her adopted parents suffered nightmares and bad visions. This is also how she burned her images onto the videotape that Katie and her friends used to copy a sports game on TV. And it makes sense now that I know she had this ability, right? Yeah. So it's like the grudge. Cause I remember that's exactly what the type of spirit the grudge was, except the difference is Samara was a fucking psychic. So until Stephen King's it from 2017, this movie was the highest grossing horror remake in history with a total worldwide gross of over $249 million. Jesus Christ. And we have to do it too. That's a huge horror blockbuster. Right. So my last one in September, 2019, the grudge from 2020 director, Nicholas Pesci 
expressed interest in a crossover film between The Grudge and the American The Ring film series akin to Sadaku vs. Kaioki from 2016. But they actually want to do Samara versus The Grudge from the American version. We had an episode, I don't even know how fucking long ago, where I said sudoku versus something or other right and some listener commented and she was just like i started sudoku. laughing when you called her sudoku <laughs> sudaku yeah <laughs> kayoka kayako anyway. sudaku versus kayako i don't know i'd be interested in watching that anyway whatever. i would i mean i would watch the japanese i would think that the the ring one would win be you know sudaku i don't know i mean like the fucking grish she's goes. a psychic she's just a psychic she's a psychic so she's already has special powers above being just an angry rage ghost I don't know. I feel like some of the deaths in The Grudge were a hell of a lot worse than this one. So. Yeah, but they had other like rage ghosts, too. It was a multitude of rage ghosts. There was a little boy and that cat. There was a little boy and the cat and, that merged. Yeah. And the, the wife, which killed people. But then there was also the husband. Mm-hmm. God, I really want to watch The Grudge. I don't remember. I, th- I thought. Maybe it was her memory of the guy. And that he didn't have a ghost, but she did. I don't know. I think he killed them both. and Whatever. Anyway, we'll have to watch those. We do. And we're going to do The Grudge next summer. We're putting it on the docket. Those were fun. Really fun, actually. And I'm super interested to know about that Chris Cooper thing. Really? But we have some questions that we need to ask about The Ring, like we do about all the movies that we deep dive into on on the Film Flamers. And we're not going to start with this is a horror movie because it clearly is. But Chris, would you have watched that fucking video in the first place? Yeah. You would have watched it all the way through? If I'd known what it was beforehand? Yeah. Or or once it started playing, watch it. Keep watching it. Both. So would you have sought it out? If you, if you thought it was some sort Sought of... Sought it out, maybe. Watched it if I started watching it, yes. Okay. So I if I started watching it, I would not have finished it. I would have turned that shit off. It would have scared me too much. So I feel like I would have survived. But also, I, I've never... Even at like sleepovers or whatever, I've never done like Bloody Mary, stuff like that. I'm too fucking chicken shit oh, to I do have. that. I I've cannot. done that by myself. Nope. I can't. Can't do it. Won't do it. Will stop. Always stop. <laughs> I don't know. So I feel like... I'm the opposite. Yeah, if this thing existed, I would survive every fucking day. There's no way in the world I would get that far. I just, you know, I'm angry at reality for not being more interesting. And so I will dare it to, you know, make me wrong. Despite the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I want to live. This world needs a fucking monster. That's right. And at least I'll have a story to tell. To unify the nations. <laughs> like, do you know how my friend died? <laughs> <laughs> to unify the nations. We need... <laughs> Come on, look at ID4. Come on. <laughs> it works. Okay. Just like COVID. Wait. <laughs> oh. Were you scared while watching the ring? Uh yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think I was scared this time around too. That got me helped. Not as much this time, not really. I mean I mean there are some moments that are just genuinely creepy. Yeah, there's movie. a lot of tension and creepiness in this movie, mm-hmm. um, and it still works. It's still quite effective. But the the jump scares and the Dolby shocks and stuff like that they wear off the first time. If I have a good yeah, they're of only the effective film. once. You know? Yeah. So. Well, and that's not always the case. There are some that are effective throughout time. You know, Exodus Three is an example. Oh fuck but, me. You know, but like after the first time you see it, it's a lot less. But yeah, I was I was scared yeah. watching this movie. Mm-hmm. So, out of five stars, what would you rate The Ring? I gave it a four star. So initially, on my first rewatch for this podcast, I gave it three and a half stars Mm -hmm. because I was a little bored. And just like Ebert, I thought a lot of it was kind of ridiculous. And I was like, now what? 
you know and I, especially with that fucking psychic ability thing i was like hey i was flabbergasted that i didn't pick up on that earlier so maybe i was just mad at myself and i was <laughs> like what the fuck is going on in this movie what and then when i watched what it did again you think the tree was from like on the wall i don't know <laughs> like I, said, I just not ask questions i was like all this is happening and i'm just gonna go with it okay that's how i watch movies in the first place i'll just get lost in it and i'm just like it's fine i don't have to question anything but when I watched it the second time, I was like, okay, I'm down with it. I dig it. I was really feeling the tension a lot more. I'm glad that I had that knowledge that she could do this with her fucking mind. And I was like, it's all falling into place now. And I was Day like, Day 16 Good. of carving this tree into the wall with my <laughs> papa's pocket knife. I don't <laughs> know what you're thinking. <laughs> I used one of the horse's hooves to draw this tree. <laughs> Either way, I went to, with four stars as well. Yeah. I think this movie has a really good pop culture moment. I think it's good for horror. Yeah, it's lost some oomph based on it's just its age, you know, and uh, some of the tropes that have been taken from it and ran with by others, you know, and so that's taken a little bit of the steam of it, you know, but it's still a classic for a reason. It is. And, and it's it, still very effective and shot so beautifully. You know, yeah. it has to, it's a, at least a four. The score is really good, you know, and also I feel like it's important, you know? Yeah. Even for people who don't think this movie is good, they have to say it's important. It ushered in an entire subgenre of American horror based on other people's horror movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it could have possibly introduced a whole sea of people to horror films and horror ideas and horror tropes that they would not have known otherwise. Well, it allowed us to segue out of the, the scream meta horror that was a comeback for horror and mm. into this new you know, this new world of things like it follows and things like that. Exactly. You know, and so it really helped us like get past like this, uh, you know, we were already in a rut before Scream. And then like people tried to keep making Screams until about 2000, ran out of steam. J-Horror came along and it allowed us to really kind of evolve and move forward. That's right. Right. I feel like American horror today owes a lot to international horror alone, but mostly international horror that comes from that part of the globe. Yeah. Right. So it's an important movie. Um, finally, who's the hottest guy in the ring? Martin Henderson. Duh. Right. I was like, he should play Gambit. <laughs> <laughs> and then I actually read that um, uh, Gore Verbinski, whatever, was actually contracted to do a Gambit movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, but he dropped out in like 2018 or something. God, I wish. I wonder if Martin Henderson would have played him. Anyway, he's fucking dreamy in this. Mm -hmm. He's like the epitome of the guy that I would have gone after in the early 2000s. You know what I mean? He's got the haircut. He's kind of a smart ass. Whatever. Yeah, he looks like uh, the character from Lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was just my type back then. Well, I don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, that long hair. Like, yeah, it's the long hair jaw, parted in the middle, like very chisel face. guy, Scott yeah. Speedman. You <laughs> yes. Know, it was very WB. Sweetest thing. <laughs> <laughs> Everything from 2000, 2005. Just let me list all those actors. Was, all the, all the maybe actors. Maybe that's why, because he's like, he looked like kind of Diamond Dozen, but you know. He's a really great actor. and I, He is a good actor. And he's you know. super good looking. Also, there's not a lot of options in this movie. What, the kid? The guy who checked around at the inn? Yeah. The grieving father? No. I mean, clearly Martin Henderson. But he's he's super hot in this, and he's really super fucking hot in X. Yeah. I don't know. Brian Cox. <laughs> or Brian Cox. I like the way you say his name in the beginning of this episode. I almost commented on it because you, <laughs> your emphasis was in such a way you're like, Cox! <laughs> I'm like, this is clearly a gay podcast. 
Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on the ring. As always, we would like to know what you guys think about the movie and our conversation, especially if you know about that Chris Cooper fun fact. You can tell us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now on Threads. Wow, Threads. Since uh, since Twitter is sort of a dying wasteland. It kind of is. It really is. Well, kind of. So sad. Threads is here. You can also email us, retiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Mmm, I want you to come down my well. Mmm, before you die, look at my ring. (laughs) (laughs) Just come down my well. Before you die, you'll see the ring. Looks like Judah Bubblegum. <laughs> you never seen my ring. <laughs> so it looks a lot more pristine than that. <laughs> Guys, we have more blockbustery content coming out for you this month. Uh, we are going to be covering The Ring 2 next week, so stay tuned for that. I completely forgot that Naomi Watts was in this movie. I, well, Aiden comes back too. That's right. I, for some reason, I thought it was Julia and Stiles, Samara. and that's a different sequel altogether. No. There was a remake of The Omen. Yes, there was. I'm confusing this with lots of movies. Yep. Thanks. And then over on Patreon, TBD. Maybe we're going to talk about Ringu. Maybe we're going to give you a last-minute poll. So stay tuned for that. And if you're not part of the Patreon family, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. Join the family, vote in polls, get all of our bonus content. All right, Robert. Well, I think it's time for us to... Uh, go and prepare our rings for <laughs> someone to come down them that would be our wells I oh my bad I'm sorry <laughs> either way I'll have some sweet, sweet dreams. dreams that could be my favorite scandalous phone line what is it called <laughs> when it's on the outside of the ring a diaphragm? Cream pie. <laughs> <laughs> the ring three. Cream pie. <laughs> I'm so vanilla when it comes to sex. I don't even know what they're called. I have I no know. idea. I don't know either. Uh, <laughs> if we said something horribly offensive, please. <laughs> All I know is donkey punch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs>